John 16, we'll begin in verse 16 this week. Last week, we spoke in verses 1 through 15, excuse me, 5 through 15. Speaking about the disciples' enablement, that being the Holy Spirit in our lives. Speaking about the sin, the righteousness, and the judgment as the Holy Spirit convicts the world. Speaking of the empowerment that the Holy Spirit gives to us, the enablement that it gives to us in order to be sanctified and in order to serve Him with our hearts and lives. This week we pick up in John 16, verse 16, the title of the message, A Disciple's Joy. We have often defined the difference between happiness and joy here at Legacy Baptist Church. Happiness is an emotion. It is rooted in circumstances. Happiness is what I like to call situationally dependent. You know, regardless of how cheery one's disposition is, regardless of how happy a person can be, there are certain circumstances in our lives that inherently make us unhappy. Perhaps this unhappiness is due to the loss of a loved one. Perhaps this unhappiness is a health problem. Perhaps it's just lack of sleep. My daughters get pretty unhappy when they don't have enough sleep. As a matter of fact, they inherited that from their father because their father gets pretty unhappy when he doesn't get enough sleep. There are other circumstances in our lives whereby it's simply, one might say, impossible to be happy within the nature of the circumstances that we go through in life. Regardless of what that circumstance is, Happiness is a feeling that comes and goes, and happiness has definite dependencies. But I'd like to contrast with you this evening the difference between happiness and joy. As we consider the realities of joy, we understand that joy is intended to be, and the word I'm going to use here is transcendent. That regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, Even in circumstances that make us unhappy, it is entirely possible to maintain joy in our lives. Have you ever experienced this, either in yourselves or in another? Something terrible has happened. Someone passes away. Someone is very sick. Someone is very poor. Whatever the circumstances may be, as you look at that person through these circumstances, you see in their eyes, reflected in their voice, in their actions, a continual joy that seems almost inexplicable to you. How is it that a person in such negative circumstances can seem so joyous? Why is it that it's so inexplicable to us? Well, it's inexplicable because we are, humans are, people of cause, and effect. Our emotions and our outlook must be based on something. If there is an effect, something say like happiness, or if there is an effect like joy, then there must have been something that compelled that emotion, compelled that effect, cause and effect. And when a person reflects an attitude of joy in the midst of difficulty, even when they are not exactly happy about the circumstances that are in their life, They reveal something about themselves. They are revealing that their hope, that their assurance, 
that their peace do not rest in the circumstances they are going through, but rather in the character of the God who commands both this life and the next. We're going to talk about this a little bit more as we get into a little bit deeper into the sermon. But if I may put it this way, happiness rests upon the circumstances that we're in. Therefore, when circumstances become negative, our happiness can go away. Joy does not rest in our circumstances. Joy rests upon the character of God. And if there's one thing that we have learned about the character of God, if there's one thing we know without a doubt about the character of God, it's that He is unchanging. And if we have an unchanging God, and we are resting our hope, we are resting our fears, we are resting the difficulties of our life upon an unchanging foundation, which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then we can have a joy that even in the midst of difficult circumstances, a joy that even in the midst of trials and tribulations and troubles and fears and anxieties and worries, we can have a joy that remains because our Savior remains. Do you find yourself to be a joyless person today? Are you plagued by your emotions Sometimes unable even to appreciate the good that is around you because of the oppression of the bad that looms over you. Has it been a while since you have been able to be thankful for anything, much less find peace and rest for your spirit? I've known some people in my time that have been so troubled. Their experiences and situations have been so troubling to them that they can't even enjoy the taste of food anymore. Foods become bland. Everything that they would see as a good circumstance is overshadowed by the bad. These situations can happen in life. But in John 16, as Jesus is still preparing his disciples for very difficult days to come, He assures them of some things. His assurance to them was that they could and indeed would still have a source of joy even in the midst of great sorrows and troubling circumstances that they will face. And the same message goes out to you and I today. See, the disciples following the death of Jesus Christ would face persecution, stoning, Lashing, beatings, would face ostracizing from their families. They'd lose their jobs. They'd lose everything that they had in this life. Paul speaks in Philippians 3, we read it this morning, about being a Pharisee of the Pharisees. About having the fast track to great influence in Israel. And having to count all those things but loss the day he accepted Christ. And yet in the midst of these things which... I guarantee you, as Paul was receiving the blows of those stones at Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, as those stones were raining down upon him, he was not a happy man. But he had a joy, which transcended his circumstances. And so this evening, we're going to learn some lessons, three lessons, in fact, on joy from Jesus Christ's preparation of his disciples for their life and ministry. Three lessons on joy from Jesus Christ's preparation for his disciples of his disciples, excuse me, for life and ministry. And the first thing we're going to learn is that there is a definitive need for joy. There is a need 
for joy. We see this in verses 16 through 19 of John 16. As Jesus and his disciples continue, they are continuing on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're still not there yet. They began on their way at the end of John 14. Jesus Christ said, up we depart. Then he started talking about the vine and the branches. Then he continues speaking to them. He's still not at the garden yet. Jesus has reminded the disciples of their deep-rooted need for him. I'm the vine, you know, the branches. He has taught them of the response which they will receive from the world. Marvel not if the world hate thee. Know that they hated me first. He has revealed their enablement sourced in the Holy Spirit. That source of salvation, that source of sanctification, that source of service. Yet throughout these teachings, it remains apparent that Jesus is speaking these things because he is about to go away. Look with me at verse 16. A little while and ye shall not see me, and again a little while and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. For these past many years, the disciples have followed a man of sorrows. They have followed a man without any earthly power or influence. Certainly he had power over the spirits. He had power over the elements, but he had no authority. He wasn't a king sitting on a throne. He couldn't snap his fingers and have a bunch of servants going their way, bringing him all sorts of great things. He was a man who caused them to see their own weakness, to see their own helplessness. But they had followed this man and they had done so because though they didn't always understand everything Jesus said, though they didn't always understand what he taught or everything he did, they all believed the words that Simon Peter spoke way back in John six sixty eight when he said, To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Do you recall the circumstance? Jesus Christ had just said some things that were very hard to swallow. And people left. They just turned around and left following him. And he turned to his twelve and said, Will you go also? Peter said, Go to whom? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. Who should we go to? You are the Savior. Regardless of what the disciples didn't know, what they did know is that Jesus Christ was the Word of God. He was God in flesh. That He had the words of life. And that these words were their key to eternal joy. Let's go deeper into this concept of joy. We've talked about happiness being rooted in circumstances. We've talked about joy being rooted in God. And as we think about this idea of joy, it is true that joy does then indeed have a dependency, doesn't it? Just like any other disposition, joy is dependent. But it's not dependent upon circumstances. In fact, as we look at joy... Quite often, joy is at its strongest in the midst of trials and in the midst of tribulation. Why would this be? Why would it be that it's quite possible that the time in which we are at our fullness of joy is when we are at our lowest point? Well, I believe Paul sums it up. Paul was a man who was afflicted with what he called a thorn in the flesh. And he said... I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. 
He didn't like this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. God's response to him was this. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. When Paul heard this response, he said, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my tribulations, in my persecutions, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, I am going to have the utmost of joy in the midst of my trials and tribulations because when I'm at my weakest, Christ is at his strongest. The source of joy is Jesus Christ alone. He alone is mankind's means of obtaining and sustaining joy. Turn back with me, if you would, to John chapter 15. Just a page, maybe two in your Bibles. John chapter 15. Look with me in verse 4. We'll begin reading there. Jesus Christ speaking, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Notice verse 11. These things I have spoken unto you, that... My joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. What do we see here from Jesus' teaching in John 15? Jesus was looking at the vine of grapes and the branches that bore the fruit. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Anything that you have is supplied through me. The implication here is that a man's joy is directly related to the degree to which he or she is abiding in Christ. Drawing our power, drawing our peace, drawing our enablement from Christ. Now further implications. Well, the unbeliever does not abide in Christ. Therefore, no unbeliever can experience true joy. An unbeliever can be happy. An unbeliever can even be content. But an unbeliever cannot experience biblical joy. Because biblical joy is rooted in Christ alone. The believer is in Christ. We are in Christ and thus expected to abide. To draw moment by moment power from Jesus Christ in order to fulfill Christ's will in us, therefore, the degree to which a believer has joy is directly related to the degree to which he is abiding in Christ. The point, this first point, is there is a need for joy. So let's ask the question, why is joy needed? Why is joy needed? Because we live in a society that is filled with great despair. 
People are unhappy. Suicide rates are skyrocketing. The statistics show us that there have been more military men that have died to suicide than have died in combat since 2001 when the war began in Afghanistan. Why is that? According to a study done in 2010, nearly one in five Americans is on some sort of psychiatric drug. That means that one in five Americans are using a pill to help their minds and their emotions be controlled. Now, I'm not contending that this is always unnecessary. Don't get me wrong. I'm not preaching a message against modern medicine here by any means. But joy is needed because mankind, apart from purpose, apart from love, apart from peace, apart from all of these wonderful virtues that are rooted in Jesus Christ and in the Word of God, those virtues that are rooted in a personal relationship with Christ, mankind without these virtues is a mess. He has nowhere to run to. He has nowhere to turn. He has nowhere to go but inside. And any time a person turns inside, anytime they turn selfish and start dwelling on themselves, there will be no joy. There's no joy in selfishness. There cannot be joy when we turn our minds and our thoughts into us. Why do the scriptures tell us it's more blessed to give than to receive? Have you ever enjoyed receiving something? I have. Yeah, it's kind of nice to receive some things. But I tell you, it's leaps and bounds better when you can give. Why? Because for that moment, you have taken your eyes off yourself and you've put them on someone else. And when you take your eyes off of yourself and you put them on someone else, there is joy because you are exhibiting a characteristic that's rooted in God, who is a giving God. That's why it's more blessed to give than to receive. Because self goes away and I look at others. That's why... These rich men all over the world are great philanthropists. They're trying to fill a void by giving. And you know what? There is a blessing there. But they'll never fully fill that void until they find Christ. Joy is needed because in this sin-sick world, a man cannot simply rely upon happiness. Joy is needed because beyond the doors of this church, there are people starving. There are people dying of disease. There are people without hope. There are people void of happiness. And they can't just flick their fingers and find happiness. They can't just say, you know what, I need a vacation, so I'm going to go to the Bahamas. They can't just say, I need to go and do a couple hours of shopping to make myself feel better about myself. There are people that simply can't do that. They can't just stick band-aids upon their unhappiness again and again and again to keep making themselves feel good. There must be something deeper. There must be something more lasting. There must be something more permanent. And it's found in Jesus Christ. See, for all the terrible circumstances that plague the world, these circumstances are not due to God. They're due to sin. They're due to selfishness. They're due to pride. And joy is able to transcend those circumstances. Get above them. Get beyond them. And give us hope. And give us peace. Because joy is not rooted in circumstances. Joy is rooted in God through Jesus Christ. Following Jesus' remarks in verse 16 that he was about to leave, the disciples were confused. They ask in verse 17, what is this little while that he's speaking of? He said that he's leaving in a little while and then he'll be back in a little while. They ask, what is this little while? 
Why would it be that Christ must leave for a little while and then we'll see him again in a little while? They were confused. And Jesus knew their thoughts and told them why he said these words. Because when he went away, joy would go with him. Look at verse 19. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and he said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said, A little while, and ye shall not see me? And again, a little while, and ye shall see me? See, there's a need for joy. Second point this evening, and it's going to be a brief point. There was a moment. There was a moment in time, three days in fact, of universal joylessness. There was a moment of universal joylessness. Jesus was again bringing before the minds of the disciples the reality of his approaching death. But in a few hours, Jesus would be betrayed by Judas. Wicked men would hang him on a cross. And this source of joy, This one who you and I look to daily, moment by moment, as our anchor of joy, he would die. And he would be put into a grave, buried in a tomb. He in whom the disciples had rested their eternal security. And he in whom rested the very promises of God to man would be placed in a grave. And this is why those words that Jesus Christ said were so important A little while. A little while. And the disciples said, what is he saying a little while? And Jesus said, finally, they're starting to ask the right question. A little while. And this is why Jesus' words in verses 16 through 19 were so important. Because while there was a moment, a moment when the whole world was devoid of the one who was both the giver and sustainer of joy, It was indeed but for a moment. And this moment, this time in which Jesus was in the grave, served only to bring about a greater joy at his resurrection. And the best thing about it, ladies and gentlemen, is that this moment of universal joylessness was a one-time thing. See, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He defeated sin. He defeated the grave. He had victory over it. And now he stands at the right hand of the Father and he's never leaving again. We never have to be apart from him again. He will never be in the grave again. He's alive. So Jesus says, look with me in verses 20 and 21. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament. Ye shall weep and lament. But the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful. But your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. Jesus uses the picture here of a pregnant woman who, when in the midst of that, that delivery, there's not a lot of joy there. There's sorrow. There's pain. There's anguish. But it's for an expected end. 
There's an end to it. There's an end in sight. And when that child is delivered, she can't even remember the pain for the joy that a child was brought into this world. Her joy supersedes the anguish. She says it was worth it. Because I have a child that was brought into this world. And Jesus Christ says, I'm going to leave for a little while. I'm going away. They couldn't quite understand, but he says, I'm going away. But though you will have sorrow, your sorrow shall be turned into joy. There's a need for joy. There was a moment, indeed, of universal joylessness. Third and finally this evening, in verses 22 through 33, There is a source of eternal joy. I've mentioned it a bunch of times. This point's not going to be a surprise to you. There is a source of eternal joy. Look with me in verses 22 and 23. Jesus still speaking. He says, And and ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Jesus says in that day, in that day, the day that was coming when He would rise from the dead, the day that was coming when He would claim victory over sin and the grave, the day when Jesus, having risen from the dead, presents Himself to His disciples, all things would change. In that day, He says, you will no longer ask Me anything. Rather, you will ask God the Father directly. Do you remember what happened when Jesus Christ was hanging on that cross? And he said those words, it is finished. And there was an earthquake. And something happened in the temple. Do you remember what that was? The scriptures describe the veil of the temple tearing from top to bottom signifying that the way into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God the Father, was now open. That you don't have to go through a priest, that you don't have to go through a pastor, that you don't have to go through a holy man of any sort to get to God, that you and I can go to God directly, the very thing we did this evening as we went to God in prayer. And so Jesus Christ said, I'm about to do something. In a little while you'll have sorrow, but then you'll have an abundance of joy because you don't even just have to ask me anymore. You can go directly to the Father in my name. And the Father Himself will listen to you, will hear you, will answer you. What a privilege. What joy. And in that day, according to verse 24, the disciples' joy will be full. The psalmist said this in Psalm 16, verse 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist said, God, in your presence, that's fullness of joy. Well, we know that Jesus does indeed sit at the right hand of the Father, don't we? The scriptures testify to us that Jesus Christ died, he rose again, he ascended, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And here's the thing, if you're a born again believer in this room today, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Therefore, you and I, positionally, 
sit at the right hand of the Father as well. We sit at the right hand of the Father as well. Let me read to you Psalm 1611 again. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You see, joy is found in the fullness of God. The indwelling of God in you through His Holy Spirit. The access to God the Father through prayer. The intercession of Christ on your behalf. It's yours. Joy can be yours. And so the death and resurrection of Christ, who is the source of eternal joy, paved the way for your eternal joy in the presence of the Father. And so Jesus says in verses 25 through 27, look at them with me. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly the Father. And that day ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. We have joy through access, and joy through hope, and joy through knowledge. All of these things rooted in Jesus Christ and bestowed upon us by virtue of our relationship with Christ. Well, the disciples think they have this figured out. They say, okay, we've got you figured out this time, Jesus. But in fact, they're still terribly confused. They still don't quite understand what Jesus Christ is saying here. See, they thought Jesus was speaking proverbially about going away a little while because he just said, I've spoken to you in Proverbs. Which made it sound like he was going to die. You're going to go away and that sounds like you're going to die And they say, okay, now you are speaking to us in Proverbs. That makes sense. You're not going to die. Now, however, they hear Jesus say that he is going to the Father. See, now this makes more sense. Jesus is king. The king is going to his Father. He's not going to die. He's just going to his Father. That makes more sense. And Jesus Christ, um, excuse me, the disciples say, Lo, verse 29, Now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Okay, now, it's this that, that makes us believe, Jesus, that you came forth from God, and that you're going to God. Look at Jesus' response in verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come that ye shall be scattered every man to his own and shall leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Did they believe that Jesus was Messiah? Did they believe it enough to stand with him unto death? Indeed, they did not. They didn't understand. It hadn't been made known to them, and Jesus knew this. It was not going to be made known unto them until the Comforter came, the Holy Spirit, and dwelled them, who would teach them all things. And they would, on that day, understand the Proverbs of Christ. Understand the parables. Understand why he had to die. Understand what was going on. So Jesus said the hour was upon them when they would all be scattered and he would be left alone. But he wouldn't truly be left alone. Because he was with his father. And you know that was okay. Because that was the cup that God had given Jesus to drink. 
That was the responsibility and the duty that God had given to our Savior in order that those whom He loved upon the earth might be able to have joy through Him overcoming the world. We've seen today that there is a need for joy. We've seen today that there was indeed a moment of universal joylessness when Christ died and was put in that grave. But that there is now a source of eternal joy. Who was in eternity past, who will be in eternity future, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the Word of God incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, all of this knowledge about joy gets us nowhere if we can't properly apply it biblically to our hearts. So let's do that now as we close. Jesus Christ is the source of all joy. Jesus Christ paid the sin penalty of every man who ever lived when he died on the cross of Calvary. So that every man has access to this joy that comes from hope, peace, and love founded upon a relationship with God through Jesus Christ alone. And the first question I must ask, as I often do, because I desire to take nothing for granted among us, is this. Do you know the one who is the source of joy? Do you know Jesus Christ personally? Do you know, have you ever had that time where you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Where you have recognized that you are a sinner? Where you have recognized that your sin condemns you to hell? Where you have recognized that there is nothing that you can do to save yourself? There's no amount of works. There's nothing that can work your way into favor with God and instead have believed on Jesus Christ, have placed your faith and trust on the finished work of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins and to make you a child of God. If you have never done this, then you do not, in your current state, know true biblical joy. In fact, you cannot know biblical joy if you have never accepted Christ as your Savior. But you can No joy, if you will, but place your faith in the one who is that source of true biblical joy. If you do recognize that you're a sinner, that you cannot earn your way to heaven, that you are not on your way to heaven, that you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you will humble yourself before God and ask Him to save you from your sin, He will. Because our God is faithful. And you will be born again in Christ. And thus have access to the one who is fullness of joy. But there are many in this room, I have no doubt, who are believers. Who do, by virtue of your salvation, have access to this joy through Christ. My question to you is this as we close. Are you taking advantage of the access you have to Christ? Are you taking advantage to joy? You are in Christ, but... Are you allowing Christ to live in you? We talked this morning in Sunday school about the difference, and we talked last week about the difference between self and Christ. Even when we are in Christ, we can live this life in self. We can do everything in our own power. We can try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can seek for that inner strength to do things. And you know what? We might even do it okay. 
But the scriptures tell us that God doesn't want us to do it in ourselves. God has no interest in us pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. God has no interest in us turning inward, as I spoke about earlier in the service, and focusing on us and bringing ourselves up. God has an interest in us laying our lives upon the altar and allowing Christ to live in us. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. But Christ liveth in me. Death to self. Alive unto Christ. And as we do so, we begin to live out the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And by the way, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. We memorized them a while back, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, meekness, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, boy, I can't even remember, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, Against such there is no law. That's the fruit of Christ in us. It's not the fruit of me and me. It's not the fruit of me pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's Christ in me that brings about the fruit of the Spirit. You've been saved from hell. But are you living as a citizen of heaven? You are dead to sin. You are alive unto Christ. You are a new creature. You have a definitive purpose upon this earth. You have tremendous hope of eternal life to come. But fullness of joy, while accessible to you, will only be realized as you live your life in Christ. This is where the fullness of joy is found. Joy is not found in stuff. Joy is not found in amusement. Joy is not even found in those wonderful positive things such as family, friends, health, service, giving. Fullness of joy is found in Christ and in living your life in conformity to Christ's teachings and Christ's expectations. So my question to you as we close, are you living in fullness of joy?